where we'll begin reading in verse 37. Acts chapter 2, the last paragraph of the chapter. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. And with many other words he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about three thousand souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and all had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. The most potent threat to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in his church, the most potent threat in the world to the church, is not the ACLU, it is not the National Organization of Women, it is not the Clinton administration. The most dangerous threat to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is the attitude found in too many pews. An attitude of consumerism and autonomy. Somehow the world around us has generated among some of God's people an attitude that the church is here to meet my needs, which is consumerism. And particularly in our culture in the United States, there is a spirit that says, no one is going to tell me what to do. Some Christians more closely reflect the Declaration of Independence than they do the New Testament. The believer is born into a family, God's eternal family. As a family of God, we are a community of regenerated people, a society of saints. This morning, as we think about the SOS for today, <clears throat> the Society of Saints, I believe that this message is urgent because of what I've just described as a danger to the Church of Christ <clears throat> and the attitudes <clears throat> excuse me, among some Christians. Now, when we talk about a society of saints, we need perhaps to, 
to define the word society because that has different ramifications to us. A society, very simply, is those living together as a community. A society is people collectively coming together, constituting a community of related and interdependent persons. Now, there are two key words in that last sentence that I need to point out. A community of related and interdependent persons. Now, if I may just illustrate from our secular society for a moment, in our culture, that's why our nation is coming apart at the seams. We no longer have anything that relates us as a people. We are celebrating our diversity to the exclusion of those things that unite us. The result is that we don't perceive ourselves as a nation any longer as related. Nor are we interdependent. Everybody has their own agenda for their group. Be it a racial group, an economic group, a cultural group, a social group. Everybody has their own agenda, so there's not this sense of interdependence anymore. The result is that our society in the United States is coming apart at the seams. And as a democracy, will not long be able to exist unless something changes dramatically in the next few years, well before our lifetime ends. Now that same spirit is creeping into the church In one sense, we might say it's almost inevitable. Because we live in this culture, we are soaked in this culture, and it's very difficult uh, not to partake of its attitudes. But because we have adopted so many attitudes of the world, including some of those I've already mentioned, the Church of Jesus Christ is in great peril in the United States. The fact is that we are related but we've forgotten that. We have all been born into the family of God by the same Holy Spirit. And the fact is that we are interdependent, although we've forgotten that so often also. And we see ourselves as autonomous Christians who can fellowship sometimes and be alone sometimes. It doesn't really make any difference. And that's not true. God's new community, this society of the saints, was born in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. We do not expect in the text that we've read to see the church fully developed. It's just a baby that's been born. It's simple in its design here. Nonetheless, we ought to see something of the essence of what a church is all about, of what the society of saints should entail, even here in Acts chapter 2. Just as when you look at a baby, you don't see a mature adult, but you do see something of the essence of a person there that's going to grow. So as we come to Acts chapter 2, we see the baby church. 
And we can find here in this text certain features that were present on this first day of the church that ought to be now fully developed in the society of the saints, this new community of God that we call the church. Let's take a look at these features as they're laid out for us here, because these are what makes the church unique. The features we're going to talk about cause the church to be unlike any other human institution. Among all the various societies of the world, the communities, the collections of people, things we're going to talk about from Acts chapter 2 are those features that make the society of the saints the society of the saints. Okay? Feature number one, this new society is based on the crucified, resurrected Jesus as both Lord and Christ. Verse 37 begins by saying, Now when they had heard this, what had they heard? We'll back up a verse. The conclusion of the sermon that Peter gives on the temple steps Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. That's what they heard. That's the message. This new society of the saints is based upon the crucified, resurrected Jesus as Lord and Christ. Now this has some significant ramifications. Every society has its founder, its leader. The founder and the leader of the Society of the Saints is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, crucified and risen from the dead. This community is unique, however, in the sense that the founder and leader of this society still lives. We speak of George Washington as being the father of uh, the United States, long dead. You can go back to other societies and civilizations and talk about their founders, long dead. But when we think about the society of the saints, we have to keep in mind this unique aspect, that its founder and its leader is still alive in heaven. The society of the saints is based on the crucified, resurrected Jesus as both Lord and Christ. His death, his life, his death, his resurrection establishes this society's beliefs and its value system. What we believe is true and the values that that produces in our lives in this society of the saints, come from Jesus Christ. His life, his example, his death, his resurrection, his teachings. We are based upon him, and everything in our society must be measured by him. Whatever does not adhere to his life and to his truth must be rejected as not being a part of our society. So the first feature that we see beginning on day one of the Society of the Saints is its uniqueness in its founder. It's based upon the crucified, resurrected Jesus as being Lord and Christ. 
That leads us to a second feature found in verses 38 and 39. This new society is entered by repentance and faith. In most societies, you enter by some ritual or rite that brings you into it. If you belong to a, a uh, club, for example, or you are born into it, as most of us were born into this society of the United States, or you might immigrate and be a part of it that way, in the case of the Society of the Saints, the only way to enter it is through repentance and faith. Now those two words are used interchangeably in the New Testament. You don't have one without the other, ever. <clears throat> Genuine repentance leads one to faith. And when one repents, it's because he believes... So the two work together, you see. Repentance is a change of mind and heart. It says that what I believed before, how I acted before, I now reject. And I turn from that and I now believe another thing. My life is moving a different direction. Faith means that we rely upon, we depend upon something. And what is it? It is Jesus Christ. We repent of who we were before, we come to Him, we believe on Him alone as our Lord and Savior. That gives us entrance into the Society of Saints. And this Society of Saints is traveling together. It's along a narrow road, we're kind of scrunched together. But it was a narrow gate that we entered, and it's a narrow road that is leading us on to our eternal destiny. Who is it that's going to repent and believe. It is those that God calls. <clears throat> As it says in verse 39, the promise is for you, your children, and all who are far off, specifically talking here about people like you and me, Gentiles, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. And so this society of the saints is entered through repentance and faith. There's a third feature. This new society is symbolized by water baptism. Verse 41. So then those who had received his word were baptized. What was the word? Verse 38. Repent and let each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. This is one of the more debated verses in the New Testament regarding the relationship of faith and baptism. And it's worth at least one message on its own. We don't have time to do that this morning. The whole key here, however, lies in that preposition in my NAV for the forgiveness of sins. It is a Greek preposition that can be taken a dozen different ways. Hence the debate over it. If anyone is confused about whether baptism is necessary for salvation, let him go to other clear statements in the New Testament where there's not any debatable prepositions, where it's very clear that baptism is not a part of the saving process. Salvation is by faith alone, but that salvation leads to baptism, inevitably in the New Testament. The two are not separated. Why is that? 
Because this new society that one enters through faith and repentance is symbolized in baptism. Baptism being immersion. It's the meaning of the term. It's what it was practiced as in the New Testament. For the first 200 years of the society of the saints, there was no sprinkling or pouring. It was all by immersion. Now, immersion was not uncommon to the people of that day. In fact, uh, some people think that Jesus created immersion. He did not. He did not start immersion. John the Baptist, Jesus' forerunner, practiced immersion out in the wilderness. And Jews who were repenting of their sins and preparing their hearts for the coming of Messiah went through that baptism. They later went through another baptism when they became followers of Jesus. You see, the first baptism did its purpose, had its purpose, but then they became followers of Jesus and were baptized again because it had a different meaning the second time. But not only so, the Jews who did not convert also practiced the immersion of converts. It was their way of ritually introducing someone into the Jewish religion. And beyond that, the pagans practiced immersion. When people became a part of some of the pagan religions of that day, they also were immersed. So you understand Jesus didn't start baptism. He took something that was familiar in the culture of that day and he sanctified it. He washed it off. He gave it a new definition. And he said, now this baptism pictures your entrance into my society. Into my faith. And so the society of the saints is symbolized by water baptism. It was sanctified by Jesus' command. He said that we're to go into all the world to preach the gospel, baptizing those who believe. It was sanctified by Jesus' command and powerfully established in the early church as a ceremony of entrance into the community of the saints. Baptism needs to be practiced today. It's not an optional thing. It is closely tied to faith. And inevitably, the biblical order is faith, then immersion. Believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, then being baptized. Indicating that one has entered into the society of the saints. There's a fourth feature that we see in this embryonic church. And that is, the new society is marked by certain core essentials. Verse 42 neatly lines them up for us. They were continually devoting themselves to, number one, the apostles' teaching. One of the core values of the Society of the Saints is the importance of the teaching of God's Word. Now then, of course, it was the apostles who were there personally delivering their teaching. The apostles have long been dead, but we have a written record of what they taught in the Bible, in the New Testament. And so today, when we think about the church and its core values, we're talking about the teaching of the Word of God. 
A church cannot be a church apart from this core value of teaching what the Bible has to say. The Bible is the permanent record of God's revelation to the apostles. Doctrine is not subject to change in the culture. It is not subject to popular vote of those who are in the society of the saints. Doctrine is revealed by God, and we're to accept it, period. Uh, in a bit of a different context, and I think you'll understand I'm simply trying to illustrate what we're facing today. We see Pope John Paul struggling with the Catholic Church, especially in the United States, where our culture has... I don't know which word to use. Evolved evolved into ideas that are contrary to the teachings of the church, which in some cases coincide with the teachings of the Bible, by the way. And the Catholics in the United States are just agitating for a change in the church's teachings on certain things. Well, whether he's on target or off target doctrinally, at least he has the idea, that is, the Pope does, that doctrine doesn't change just because people's attitudes change. Doctrine is not established by the democratic vote. Doctrine is revealed to us by the Word of God, and one of the core values of the true Church of Jesus Christ, of the Society of the Saints, has to be the teaching of the Bible and adherence to what it says. Secondly, we notice the core value of fellowship. The Society of the Saints meets to share together, is what the word means. There was a sense of belonging and a sense of being responsible for one another. That's what fellowship means. It's not cake and uh, coffee after church. Fellowship is a sense of belonging to each other and responsibility for each other. That's a core value in the church. A church can't be a church without that core value. And then it speaks about the breaking of bread, which in the context here of, of Luke's writing <clears throat> refers to the Lord's Supper. Now, it may be that they incorporated a meal, a full meal around that, but the heart of it was their, their time of fellowship when they remembered the Lord's sacrifice in communion. And I'm broadening that idea to say that a core value of the church is that of worship, of recognizing the presence of the Lord Jesus in its midst and focusing on Him so that we're not coming to have our needs met we're coming to worship Jesus. We're coming to remember Him and His sacrifice. The fourth core value of the church is that of prayer. Here is the expression of the community to its founder. Adoring Him, confessing sins, giving thanks, offering petitions. Broad concept, of course, in prayer. A church is not a church if it's not a praying church. 
A church can get together and have a good time. It can accomplish a lot of things in its own efforts. But it's not really the society of the saints unless there's a place for prayer, corporate prayer. The congregation praying together. That's one thing we're trying to capture in these circles of intercession. <clears throat> it's not just that we have individuals who come to a service with pressing needs on their own hearts. It's the fact that all of us need to be caught up with them in the spirit of prayer. And so the new society is marked by certain core values. And I want to tell you, it doesn't make any difference if this church is on the other side of the world, in a tribal situation, or if it's in the middle of an inner city or suburban setting. It doesn't make any difference if it's in the 1800s or the 1900s or the 2400s. A church, a society of the saints, will always have these core values. Always. They're features of it. There's a fifth feature of the society of the saints that we see in Acts 2, and that is that the new society is characterized by the active power of God. Verse 43 tells us that everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Our God is an awesome God. That word awesome means that he evokes from our hearts a sense of wonder and mystery and admiration at such a God. In that early church there was this, this sense that God was there with them. And there was this response in their hearts that has said, God is here. And it says that many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. God's power was revealed through the apostles in specific ways, in signs, wonders, and miracles. And according to the New Testament, even as the apostles left the scene, their work being finished, <clears throat> so the signs, wonders, and miracles ceased as such. But I want to say something to you. That doesn't mean that God's power left the church. It only means that the signs, wonders, and miracles as done by the apostles were gone in the first century. <clears throat> I believe that we should expect that in the society of the saints, there will be the supernatural workings of God. The most important one being salvation. That is supernatural, my friend. That any human heart would turn to God requires supernatural intervention because we are depraved degenerated people. And any time a heart turns in faith to Jesus Christ, God is intervened. It is God who works in you, both the willing and the doing of His good pleasure, says the Apostle. But I'm also talking about answers to prayer. We ought to expect that in the society of the saints, there are answers to petitions that we offer to God. God intervening I'm talking about healings. Not in the sense that anybody has the gift of healings, as was common in the New Testament time, but we ought to see people healed. 
We can come to God and pray. Because of the world view that we inherit in our educational system, that God is up there somewhere and we're down here and what's up there isn't real and what's real is all you can see. When we're sick, the first thing we do is go to the doctor. The first thing we ought to do is pray. The first thing we ought to do is pray. Doesn't mean then you don't go to the doctor. God has a place for doctors, but the first place is to prayer in our sickness. Read James chapter 5 and other texts in the New Testament dealing with this issue. We ought to see deliverances from demons. Again, our whole world view causes us to uh, ignore this vast area of spiritual warfare. But we ought to see the supernatural power of God liberating people from Satan's bondage. That's not just New Testament days. That's not just the first part of the church's existence. That's for the whole age. We ought to see awakenings. We ought to see revivals. The supernatural working of God, the society of the saints is characterized by the active power of God, not just the benign belief that God can do anything. That's nothing. We ought to see the active power of God. I have to tell you that I've seen more of this in the last year at Grace Church Roseville than I've seen in any ministry I've been in. We've seen people healed in the last year. God hasn't always healed, according to the prayer of the elders, but He has healed. We've seen people delivered from demons. and the bondage that they bring to the lives of people. People who had sold themselves to that kind of uh, control of the enemy. God's active power has been displayed, and I tell you, it's done something to this pastor. It's done something to my faith in the last year. It's done something to my conviction is I've seen God working in ways that I've never seen before. I'm tempted to be anecdotal, and I don't think I will tell you any stories at this point. But you will want to hear the testimony on Grace Fest Sunday morning. It's a very special testimony, and one that is going to tell you something about the active power of God in the midst of this congregation. Through some of you, and you didn't even know it. A society of the saints, in whatever age, will have the feature of the active power of God at work in its midst. Number six, the new society is demonstrative in its relationships. You notice what it says here in verse... 44, those who had believed were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and sharing with 
with all as anyone might have need. Now, some people have incorrectly labeled this as Christian communism. God help us. Uh, This is not Christian communism. Communism says, what's yours is mine. What we have here is, what's mine is yours. It's just the opposite of communism. It's people out of the love of Christ demonstrating their compassion and concern for others. The new society is demonstrative in its relationships. It's not satisfied just to say, well, we're, we're the people of God. It demonstrates that within the fellowship and the world. Well, some people say, should we not practice what it says here and live communally? Well, there are some people who choose to do that. I don't understand this to be a form that is normative for this age. That is, a form of acting out our love that uh, is intended to be practiced in all times. It's one expression of it, and it was fitting at this particular time, but it's not always fitting in every situation. However, the Society of the Saints will always demonstrate in some manner, in its relationships, that God is at work in its midst, that it's real, that it's different. The final feature that I want to point out in our text regarding the society of the saints is that this new society is observed as both dynamic and magnetic. Verses 46 and 47. Day by day, continually, with continuing in one mind, in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God, and having favor with all the people. See the dynamic that is there? Openly, the power of God is at work. It's not static, it's not lifeless. There's evidence of life, and vitality in this church. This church is not a closed system or community. It's open. It's embracing others. It's dynamic in its constancy. Day by day. It wasn't just a Sunday, first day of the week kind of operation. But every day, constantly, there was dynamic in this church. It's dynamic in its unity. With oneness of mind, they were coming to the temple. Dynamic in its methodology, both in the temple, in these large public arenas, and from house to house, and in private situations. This church was was moving ahead. It was dynamic. Dynamic in its methods. Dynamic in its testimony. They were praising God and having favor with all the people, referring to the people who were not Christians. Now this changed. As there began to be more confrontation and more hostility develop between the message of Christ and the message of the Jewish religion, there was hostility that developed. But you notice the dynamic in the testimony here, at least, That they were having favor with the people. God was at work. And the result of all this was magnetism. There was an attraction to this fellowship. The Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. There was increase in the church. 
There was growth in the church. And they weren't transferring from up in Samaria, from across town at the other church. There was only one. Here we see genuine growth as people were converted. And that leads me to say that in the society of the saints, there needs to be growth through new conversions. Uh, There's a whole lot of church transplanting going on in our culture. And there are some churches that are written up as being uh, super churches. They've grown to be multiple thousands of people. And people applaud and say, isn't that wonderful? But if you look behind the scenes, you find out that most of those people are not new converts, but they have sucked up lots of people from other churches around them because of whatever. That isn't church growth. That's an anomaly. I'm not even sure it's healthy. In fact, I'm pretty sure in some cases it's not healthy. But in a church that's a a real society of the saints, there's going to be growth. Now here it was very rapid growth. There were 3,000, my goodness, the first day. And then every day after that, the Lord kept adding people to their number, those being saved. That just tells me, though, that if it is a healthy church, it's going to grow. And, And if anybody has the mindset that a church ought to just stay we four no more, then that, that's not godly, that's not spiritual, it's not biblical, it's devilish, it's worldly. God intends for the church to grow and to multiply and to increase in new conversions as the Lord adds those being saved. And what I've tried to do in looking through this paragraph briefly this morning is simply to point out for us the features of the society of the saints Now, this society of the saints is under attack in our culture, unlike it has been in our culture previously. And not just by outside forces, as I've tried to say, but by attitudes internally. The church is to be in the world, but when the world gets in the church, we've got big problems. And broadly speaking, in America today, that's where we are. Lots of worldly attitudes in the church Some of them so cleverly cloaked and disguised as being spiritual. That's what makes some of them so hard to to expose. As we come here, we see the church in its infancy and its simplicity. And just laid out for us in a very wonderful fashion are seven of the features of what the Society of the Saints ought to be all about. Now, Some of you are visiting here today from other churches. Many of you are part of Grace Church Roseville. But wherever you may be from, if you are a saint, if you are one who has been called by God to belong to Jesus Christ, then your commitment to the society of the saints is not only vital to your earthly experience, it's really a measurement of your walk with God. We have the idea that somehow we can be wonderful Christians and be detached from the church. But if we see our participation in the church, the society of the saints, as being fringe and not focused, then somehow we've lost it. The world's gotten in us. 
If we see the church as a place for our convenience, and not a place that we're committed to out of conviction, then somehow the world has gotten into our hearts. You cannot think of a church apart from its people any more than you can think of an ocean without thinking of its water. Or think of a fire without considering its flame. Or a harvest without thinking of its grain. Or God without acknowledging the Trinity. You see, a church is not a thing out here somewhere that I plug into when I want to and I detach when it asks too much. A church is who I am. A church is what I've been born into. A church is a new society that I've been, become a citizen of by the grace of God. And I want my life and I want my church to have the features of what God wants his new community to look like. I believe that, that most of you feel the same way. We want our lives to correspond with this book. I'm going to spend several weeks this fall talking more about this subject. But it's such an urgent message in the church of Jesus Christ today that I felt it needed to be an SOS to our hearts today. Let's bow together. Truly the commitment that we have to the Society of the Saints is the commitment we have to Jesus Christ. You can't separate the two. The devotion, the loyalty that I have to Christ is exactly proportionate to the, devo to the devotion and the loyalty that I have to his church, to his new society. That's the measurement. And today there's cause for repentance, there's cause for renewal of commitment in the hearts of many of God's people. I'd like you to sing this chorus with me if it reflects the spirit of your heart. In my life, Lord, be glorified, be glorified. In my life, Lord, be glorified today. And with that, we have to also sing. In your church, Lord, be glorified, be glorified. In your church, Lord, be glorified today. My friend, if you're not a child of God, if you've not trusted this Savior that we've talked about this morning, He was crucified and risen from the dead for you. Will you today trust Him? and become a part of his society in the world? I hope you will. Let's all stand together.
If we can help you in that decision to trust the Savior, will you please call us at the church office this week or stop by here at the door where I'll be shaking hands in the front afterward. Be glad to talk with you personally about that. And Father, I pray that all of us who are part of the Society of the Saints will understand its features and will measure ourselves and our church by what the Word says. And I pray that you will give us grace not to keep doing things the way we always have, or to be content with the attitudes that lie upon our hearts today. May we check those attitudes by the Word and bring into conformity anything that is lacking. Truly, Jesus, be glorified in the society of the saints, your body, your new community. We pray this for your sake as well as ours, and in your name, amen.